Welcome back to the Wine Tech Insiders Podcast. We are back with our full slate of insiders. Joining us today is Lori from Outchinery. Hi, everyone. Nick from Wine Owners. Hello. Seb from Trolley. Good morning, boys and girls. And Jonathan from Bottle Books. Good evening. <laughs> we are back today with a bunch of news. Um, it's been a, a, a month since we've really talked through a bunch of news. So uh, we want to cover some of the hot topics that have gone on in the last month. Um, the hottest topic, I think, that came out, um, especially in the wine tech area, was that um, the, the startup picks. Um, has laid off a bunch of people. They're looking for a buyer. Um, essentially, it didn't go. Paul Mabray said they just didn't have enough runway to do what they wanted to do and made a kind of controversial comment. Um, he said that the wine tech uh, world is a hard market to define. It has endless failures and endless mediocre successes. Laurie, um, what do you think? Are you a failure, a success, or is he, uh... <laughs> Where do I stand? Where do I stand? Um, yeah, I mean, I do believe that it is a challenging category. I think that's even why we're doing this podcast, you know, like this specialty. What I think struck, struck me the most was, I think he mentioned, like, um, wine tech is a graveyard of failures. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist a scientist, but like, so compared to what, because, you know, like a lot of fintech is not doing well, a lot of like, you know, like, like what's your, what's your comparison? Um, I think I'm always a bit suspicious when um, failures are being lumped with others to say, not, not that I want to distract from the fact that it's, you know, like it's really hard for the team and I'm not like rejoicing that the, of the failure of it, but it's just like, let me, and us all on that call with our own companies, like run our own race kind of thing like that, like don't bundle us um, as a common ground. Like it was just, if anything, it kind of gave me a bit of a spring in my step. I'm a bit like a contrarian that way to tell me something is not possible. Then I was just like, let me prove you wrong even more. Uh, but then I don't really appreciate myself thinking even that way. But I kind of like want to defy, challenge that logic. I don't want to be in the graveyard. <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> I mean, to some extent, it's almost an obvious statement. I mean, nine out of 10 startups fail. Right, that's, exactly. That's, the, that's, that's, that's just nothing to do with wine. That's a statistic. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter whether it's wine or something else. Exactly. So if this, so if this, is, the, this is the graveyard, come join us. It's, it's a nice place to be. Um, but uh, um, yeah, no, it's um, yeah, it is a challenging category. But I think just like any business, if you're solving a problem that other people agree is a problem um, for a fair price, you're going to have a business. And it is a more fragmented industry, perhaps perhaps be uh, compared to others. Um, uh, but um, there are still a lot of problems that can be solved um, that people are making money and running uh, auxiliary businesses outside of the direct production. Um, on it. It, it. The industry needs software to run and those companies that, yeah, that are solving the problem and connecting with those who, and communicating about it as well. I mean, let's face it, it's like you, half half of half of doing uh, tech startups is um, not just coming up with a solution, but then communicating it as well. And I, I think that's, um, you know, that's not an easy, that's not an easy thing to do. 
Um, I would say even before that, it's just like really, I mean, without like falling into the startup thing, go, but just like, are you solving a real problem? Like, is there, you know, like sometimes, you know, like the, the elusive product market fit, you know, like it's also like something, uh, if you don't have that, if you're not solving a problem, if you're just like a vitamin or, you know, like, it's, I think it's not enough, right? Especially in that economy that we are in. Like, yeah. Seb, I'm curious, what, what do you think? I see you drinking your coffee. Not wine, I'm, um, <laughs> I, I think I think uh, Pix has existed for uh, less time than all of us around this table today, and that graveyard comment has given him the spotlight that we're here spending time talking about him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We're talking about the business. Um, I, I look, I, I fully understand a couple of angles. Uh, I fully understand that from a financing standpoint, right? Paul is in, in San Francisco and the model San Francisco slash California, the model down in Silicon Valley is more or less, you come up with an idea, you kind of build a proof of concept and then you go and get some money to make it big, big, big. And that model is definitely difficult in the world of alcohol or wine more specifically a lot of wine startups or wine driven startups have struggled with that approach simply because investors uh, don't look at things the same way that for instance a bank would right there's no asset behind it you're trying to investors want to return their money right um, and the problem i think uh, that this highlights and i think jonathan kind of uh, touched the topic a little bit is that we need to try and figure out uh, as a business, as opposed to having an idea and just trying and just getting some money to make it happen, we really need to kind of uh, come back to our roots and fix a problem and address something and make a difference before we can consider changing the world, right? Uh, it's all well, well and good to, to have uh, ambitions, but at the same time, I think in the world of wine specifically, uh, a lot of wine startups have tried to reinvent how consumers discover wine, namely picks. Um, and I think there's a fundamental error in this because wine is not like a pair of shoes. Wine doesn't fit the canvas of a mass-produced, manufactured kind of a good. Wine is an experience. And we're struggling to come up with new ways of selling that experience. Okay. Um, so, look, I understand the financials. I think, from a product standpoint, we need to we need to think on our feet a bit more um, because it's not it's not um, it's not new that wine startups are struggling and 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 kind of uh, not moving fast enough. You know. Well, well, I think I think also along this is it's any business model where you have to achieve a critical mass before you can even start taking your first payment is an extremely risky uh, business model. And for those, you either have to aim big or go home. Um, there is no sort of middle middle route. So I think for when I see new startups coming through and you're like, okay, well, you've got a proof of concept. You can show that you can do an automated tasting recommend or automated wine recommendation. Um, and you've been able to test it on 5,000 wines. It's like fantastic. Okay, but the next step from five thousand is five hundred thousand, and you need that if you're going to make yeah. that idea a success. And it's really difficult to make that leap in the world of in the world of wine. Um, but yeah, it's 
yeah, the, the critical mass where you need the whole world to be there before you can start charging is a really, really difficult business model to make work. And look, I think the, the number of startups, broadly speaking, so Jonathan did mention nine out of 10 startups fail anyway, right? So that's, it's at large. And if we look at it the other way around, considering wine is you know, enjoyed with friends, wine is an experience, wine is a human, very, very deep-rooted human experience. If you look outside of wine, there's not that many startups, there's not that many businesses who have seen the day of light, or the light of day, the light of day, <laughs> uh, in, in the last 15 years, which have scaled well and are selling experiences. Right. We've seen the, the Parker guys. We've seen different mattress companies. We've seen a lot of product companies kind of shaping up. But really, if we're trying to, to digitally offer something that's really going to make you feel emotions, I dare you, name them. There's not that many. Right, and there's Airbnb who's kind of a running I, was just, well. I was just about to say Airbnb, but they are their right. own, yeah, yeah. But 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 they do have an experienced brand that's that branch that's quite quite interesting. Uh, look, there's the the WeWork. Ultimately, we're selling a brand and an experience, right? And even if you know it's been a miserable failure overall, today you talk about a co-working space and you still mention WeWork. WeWork. I'm going to find a WeWork, right? Uh, and this is an experience that they were somehow able to package in their brand. Um, but there's not a... Funny that you just mentioned WeWork. I don't know if you guys know, but there was also the wing that was not a part of WeWork. That was like the female co-working space, like super pink millennial, gorgeous space. And they actually just announced closure yesterday. So, because oh, yeah, we're selling an experience, a different co-working experience, um, yeah. So I, I probably can't <laughs> say that on the air, but commercial real estate is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, what, what, what do you think about all of this? Um, I mean, does it? Is there any point? A good point here. Does it take a bit longer? Um, do you need a little bit more time? Is is the wine? world starting a, a wine tech startup is it at all different than starting it in another industry um i, I don't think it is uh, to be honest uh, i think that there you know there are some it, it, you know we've seen during the course of this year some great successes uh, namely you know the acquisition of 750 by provi um you know the the ability for somebody like provi to 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 scale very significantly and attract funds I think at the other end of the spectrum, there are quite a lot of private equity companies who are increasingly attracted by hyper niche businesses, uh, where they think uh, that by you know applying a model to a business that understands a market and which is doing okay in a market, they can they can properly scale it and dominate that within that market. Albeit the overall numbers might be quite a bit smaller than than broader mass markets um those markets are attractive and increasingly so um and i guess we shouldn't forget that you know wine searcher has done a great job uh albeit slowly progressively over you know the last um 20 years um in in building a you know, a good market position within sort of basically, you know, wine and spirits price comparison. Um, 
uh, and you know, yes, Provi were trying to do something a bit different in terms of um, kind of you know um, helping people discover wine to Seb's point, but fundamentally, it, it you know the under the bonnet, it was a very similar business, right? And it was a business that depended upon good technology that worked really well. And I think part of the challenge has been that, you know, um, uh, that technology maybe has been in beta a bit longer than its founders had hoped for. Uh, and then to Jonathan's point, you know, where you have a business model where you need the product to deliver uh, and to work before you are able to take money from your primary market, um, then if that market isn't entirely convinced, then then clearly that's that's going to to hold you back and be a bit of a challenge. And then depending on how you you know how you um, choose to build your business out and and what the cost profile of that is, whilst you are in the process of you know doing your your raises, um, then obviously you're increasing the risk of a business. Um, uh, uh, where your funding isn't yet secured and and your cost profile is running seriously ahead of your capital base. Um, so you know, I I really you know I really appreciated what they were trying to do. Um, I, I thought it was a um, I thought it was a sort of an attractive um, package, but at the end of the day, um, you know, they had to convince. Um, a significant um, proportion of the fine wine market, at the very least, if not the broader market, including um, producers, um, uh, that it was um, worth their participating in it and um, paying for the lead generation arising from it. Um, uh, so, I, 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 you know, I think I think that that that. Um, I don't think that wine, I think wine has been very well funded. I think wine and spirits and alcohol has been extremely well funded in the US um, uh, over, uh, in in uh, in the last couple of years. I think there's much talk in the US as well about more money coming into the wine market as um, investors look for roll-up opportunities. You know, it's a, it's a fragmented market uh, and there are some very strong um, offerings within that market, um, but it's still, you know, full of relative point solutions. Uh, and I think that, that there will be in the next couple of years, probably a significant amount of money that's spent particularly in the US market, particularly around um, <clears throat> three tier and, you know, solving interstate challenge, uh, shipping challenges and such like, I, I think there'll be significant amount of money spent. Um, but I do also think that, um, you know, we are entering a period where funding um, for ideas as opposed to businesses, established businesses, is going to be much harder over the next two, three years than it's been over the last two, three years. In fact, it's been, you know, arguably absurdly easy to get funding for an idea um, over the last few years. And that clearly is going to change as, um, you know, the world, um, you know, deals with, um, you know, what's coming. Well, the shining star of wine tech startups is uh, Vivino. 
considered by many as the Vivino, um, just because they're so massive and they rely a lot on their ratings. Um, and Esther Mobley from the San Francisco Chronicle, you know, took a look to see whether these ratings suck or, or not. And surprisingly to her, I think she found that they were not bad. They were actually very good. Um, Seb, is this, is this a surprise? It, it, is it, 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 is the wisdom of the crowd really good? I mean, do you think that that's, um, that's something that uh, consumers instinctively know? Have they gone away from, you know, reviews um, from critics to the crowd because they feel that those, those reviews are actually just as good? It's, look, I mean, there's two, there's really two angles um, to how we look at reviews. Um, and I think, broadly speaking, not just in the world of wine, in the world of anything, as human beings, we seek validation, we seek suggestions, we look at reviews as, oh, everybody else likes it, so I'm going to try it, right? Um, so a lot of people prefer to kind of be directed in a certain direction. And I, I look, I'm a strong believer in not necessarily the power of the crowd, but the democracy of that data. The fact that there is not a single person deciding on a single score, it's literally the masses. Uh, the challenge here is really that most wines on the planet are produced at a scale that most people will never be able to discover them. So I think the reviews are quite accurate for the mass produced wines, for the wines that everyone can kind of uh, enjoy. Yep, it'll kind of make sense. You'll have a few more people tasting a wine that's been produced in 50,000 cases as opposed to 500, right? The challenge again is how do you discover a new experience? How do, you, how do you discover a new wine? How do you discover something that is unique that you normally wouldn't have gone through? You wouldn't have tried for yourself. And look, it's a really good example because a lot of the code that we're living with today in, in the Facebook and the Google and the Amazon recommendations and all that stuff, it's a piece of code just using crowd data, assuming you're going to like it. And all it's doing is to try and feed you what will kind of keep you buying and keep you online. When it comes to the discovery bit, I don't think we've cracked it and I don't think Vivino's cracked it either. When it comes to truly trying something like the editorial piece of a newspaper doesn't exist in Facebook. Same as I would like to discover something new that's going to fucking wow my brain today well, Vivino is not going to do that for me. So look, I do believe in the democratization of it all. Uh, the days of, uh, what was his name? Robert Parker, the days of Parker are over. We're now dealing with hundreds, if not thousands of influencers doing their own little things. We're dealing with hundreds of thousands of reviews trying to sort of uh, go into a certain direction. So on one angle, yeah, on the other angle, no. So, yeah, so I would argue that, you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm entirely sold on the comparison with a, you know, um, magazine review of a wine or whatever, because I don't believe that most people who um, want to drink wine and want to kind of feel more confident about picking it um, would be bothered to read 
to be fair. The, the, I mean, you know, who reads these days, right? And who reads yeah, but it's about a different type of customer. who reads who reads about wine? You and I do, but but most I don't. people don't. Most people don't. And I, and I am I am interested in the fact that my daughters, my daughters' friends, that age group in their twenties are using Vivino and they're using it in a very straightforward way, which is here's a wine that I quite liked and here are some other wines from other people who suggest that I might like those wines too. And and that's all they really, that's that's all they need to make, you know, a decision. decision about the next bottle to buy. And, and yeah. you know, and then, you know, who knows over time, you know, they figure out, you know, uh, perhaps a bit more objectively what they what they like or maybe they get into it a bit more or or maybe they maybe they don't and they just sort of use it as a sort of uh you know a um uh, a way of um you know feeling a little bit more confident about um buying the next bottle of wine um and i think to be fair although it is clearly far from perfect um i i i think that vivino has probably done a better job than than most in achieve in in setting out to achieve what they've achieved and 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 probably rightly so given how much money they've spent getting there and how much cash they've burnt through getting there clearly clearly you know there are not that many businesses that are going to you know be able to um get through a cut 100 million dollars in 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 uh, uh you know in 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 that little kind of segment as it were um yeah. so so yeah i think i think they're doing all right actually and i i, 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 I do i i do think that the um that the um the preferably type um kind of api based services that then if you like provide a recommend a recommendation engine that's based on a very, very large database of um, uh, of taste of wine that's been tasted and that's been broken down into its sort of various elements. But all, although that bit's obviously all hidden from the consumer, it is quite interesting too. I like the idea of of the the recommendation taking place on in the shop that you've gone to to find the wine that you want to buy. Because again maybe there's a much bigger audience who aren't using Vivino who will never download an app in order to kind of find something out, but who are much more used to the fact that they go online to Amazon and they see peer reviews and they make a decision based on what Amazon serves them up. And if something like Preferably can effectively be a plugin that achieves something quite similar to that within, um, you know, a... Um, a cross section of retailers, then, then maybe that's the way increasingly people are going to consume that sort of advice. Do we have? Um, I'm just curious on on the concept of reviews. We know that Amazon for a while has been plagued with some challenging or borderline fake review. We we are now seeing that apparently Twitter has a whole bunch of fake accounts and bots and shit. Do we know as to how much the Vivino reviews might have been more or less manipulated by some so, of the larger brands? I don't know. Eh? I mean, it's a niche market, so it's less interesting for 
hackers or for <laughs> why um for, for, but, for it's, reviewers. but it's a but it's a know. perfect it's a perfect use case for influencer marketing isn't it where oh, you yeah. know penfolds figures out through using programs like tracker who the people are who are most active on somewhere like the vino and or you know Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and who have yeah. the most followers and have the most reach and whose views resonate most mm. most strongly with their followers. And all of a sudden, you know, they get a bottle of, you know, bin whatever it is Oof. or McGill's or whatever that turns up and they're invited to taste it and take photographs of it and all the rest of it. I mean, and yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that happens, right? Yeah, oh, 100%, absolutely. And look, I think the, the, the gist of it is really that um, what you suggested, Nick, that really the purchase decision, what we need to keep in mind is that Vivino broadly for the majority of the market actually serves a purpose, mm -hmm. right? And then we talked about, you know, wine fraud a couple of weeks ago. And, and the question that came, kept coming back is, does the most of the market really care if I'm enjoying the product? Um, and it's the same thing here with Vivino. Overall, most of the market uses it. Uh, it's not it's not groundbreaking for an absolute fine wine connoisseur, but you know, kind of works. I was just for the, for the sake of the conversation, Vivino started in two thousand and ten. Apparently, just to give context, we're like twelve years and going. I mean, it takes ten years to make an overnight success, right? Yeah. But I think uh, I think I another agree with that. <laughs> I think another <laughs> I think another another angle of you know is uh, we've and it ties back into what you were saying, Nick, about your daughters that it's a very um, the number of clicks that they uh, are doing to make a, a buying decision are really quite few. And I think we've also had conversations in the past about people leaving the category and going into um, you know into gins or. Um, waters or, you know, just leaving the category because other categories are more compelling or have better marketing or just simpler to understand. And maybe for a, for a segment of the population, the vino is exactly what they need to even uh, to, to, to stay in the category and to keep it approachable. So, um, and yeah, if you can, be reasonably confident of having a good experience, even if it's not the most unique experience, then uh, maybe that gets you to buy a bottle of wine instead of a bottle of beer. And uh, well, start on that. Um, Seb, you, you did mention um, um, fraud um, and uh, there was a big victory by treasury in China. Um, the Chinese Supreme Court um, uh, ruled in favor of them. They've been fighting Rush Rich um, in a six-year legal battle um, for copycatting penfolds in China. Um, I think this is a good follow-up, uh, a thread that's been going on, um, uh, battles between China and Australia, limiting imports, um, um, all of that. And um, Finally, something um, different. It, 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 could this be a sign of, of, of things to come? Could, could brands be safer in China? Um, any, any thoughts about this? Uh, look, I, I think, I think I mean, it's interesting in the world of wine. 
Uh, I don't think it's it's a news that's specifically only for wine. Uh, at a broader macro level, it's clear that China is increasingly trying to establish itself as a financial superpower, and they're increasingly understanding that they need to help businesses protect their assets, protect their copyright, right? Uh, so inc- I think we're going to see more and more of that uh, in the next five, ten years. Um, in in this very case, look, I mean, it, it's penfold. I mean, good for them. Well done. Uh, I would be curious as to whether there's that establishes a, a, a valuable precedent for smaller brands to lean onto in China. For the time being, I would have my doubts. I don't think that a small winery out of, I don't know, South Australia shipping in a, a pallet to one customer, one bar in China being copied 10 times over. I don't think these guys will benefit in the meantime. They don't have the finances to sue. And I don't think it'll create a, a solid precedent. But at a macro level, China is really trying just to send the message that okay, you can come and do business with us because our court system will support you as a company. Yeah, I, look, I think I think that it's all about. I, I, I think I think it's interesting that if you're a that if you invest time uh, and um, and and people in a jurisdiction uh, and you know you um, are, are respected within that jurisdiction, then you know thing you can get things done. I agree with you, Seb, that if you're a small entity that doesn't have a local presence in China, that doesn't have the ability to influence and lobby, um, um, you know, the various the various um, institutions that you need to lobby, then then I, then I think um, then I think this this result, whilst um, encouraging for businesses of all types of a certain size, um, it isn't really going to mean anything to them at all. Agreeing, it's just like at the end of the day, yeah, Belfort is massive, isn't it? The biggest, well, the second biggest brand. Treasury is huge, Treasury. yeah. Yeah, but it's a split, right? I think it's its own kind of like entity or corporate. I don't really know how they were split and everything, but they have, you know, if, if somebody with like all the money behind it to get this through, it would be them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. Well, thank you for listening to the Wine Tech Insiders podcast. That was episode 34. I'd like to thank our insiders, Seb from Trolley, Nick from Wine Owners, Jonathan from Bottle Books, and Lori from Outshinery. We'll see you all in a few weeks. Thank you, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.